Hello, welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. This podcast is part of a mini-series co-hosted with Susie Allegre, International Human Rights Barrister, Associate at Doughty Street Chambers and Research Fellow at the University of Roehampton. And today we'll be joined by Elif Kuzkonmaz, who is a lecturer in law at the University of Portsmouth. We'll be talking about personalisation and data, how internet companies are taking your data and feeding you up content which they think is the right content for you and the potential rights issues with that. We're grateful to the Office of the OSC representative on Freedom of Media for a grant through their Spotlight on AI and Freedom of Expression projects to support this series. And the Better Human podcast is generally supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and law within a framework of social justice. If you want to find show notes or support the podcast, you can go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. Thanks so much uh, for being with us here today. Um, And today we're talking about AI and how that affects our rights to freedom of expression, freedom of opinion and freedom of information. Um, And I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your expertise, particularly around uh, data protection and your expertise on, on human rights. Thank you, Susie. I basically work around the right to privacy and data protection, and more particularly the way in which uh, this can be exercised in the context of border controls. And from there onwards, from my studies and my research, uh, comes the idea of profiling of individuals based on the data, and sometimes this data are the data that are collected by the private sectors. And from there onwards, these are the areas that also touch with the idea of personalization and how personalization occurs in in online social media. Yeah, absolutely. So today we're going to talk about that idea of personalization of information and news feeds, the things that we receive. And obviously personalization is a very complex uh, process. Could you just very briefly run through a couple of the different stages uh, of personalization in terms of, of how it works with our data? Surely. So in really simple terms, personal, personalization is customizing the content of the individual um, in their online social media or news feeds, different technical means. And we can basically uh, divide personal, personalization into three stages. The first of all, the data should be collected. And this is, is the initial stage in which personal data protection comes in. And the second stage will be where when these data are collected, then the data needs to be evaluated. And this data will be evaluated based on other individuals' data or uh, inferences in which the, the, the online social media authorities may consider, may predict, may try to predict the behaviors of the, the users. And this will be an account of profiling if we speak from a data protection perspective. And in the last stage, then, um, the, based on these evaluations, then the, the individual will be offered recommendation. 
And here we come across with the idea of automated decision making and the extent which this automated decision making can be justified or are there any prohibitions that data protection law provides for this type of recommendation. So these are the three stages of personalization and how data protection may come into play here. And what we're talking about today is very much personalization that's automated all the way through. So all of those three stages are effectively run through AI. Um. Yeah, yeah, correct. Especially on the last stage. And if we talk about how AI is used to provide an automated recommendation, there we will basically come across with this prohibition that I mentioned earlier, because if it's done by solely on AI, or in other words, solely on the basis of automated decision making, then we come across with the idea that this might be prohibited in at the national laws or at the in, in, regional level, of course, to the extent that also it impacts our freedom of expression and freedom of thought. And another area where AI is important in the other stages is that how do we know that this recommendation is based on AI, on automatic decision making? And this basically ties into the, the second stages and the first stages um, of justifying the data collection, justifying the profiling, because the main idea is that if the user does not know that uh, the data will be collected to provide an automated recommendation or to be used in this AI processing, then if the idea, if the first justification for collecting this data is based on the user's consent, then this is also debatable because the users may not know that they're actually consenting to this process. So can you explain what kind of data is being used? I mean, it, it just take a, a standard individual who uses Facebook, say, um, and um, uses it to interact with their friends and maybe work colleagues. What kind, it, what kind of data is being taken from them to build this profile? First of all, we will have to sign in to this, this, this media outlets if it requires science, if it requires the the, the that process. And of course, then all the information that we provide, our gender, age, probable location, because sometimes there is a specific optional uh, area where we will include where we are from, where we lived, etc. So all these things that we ourselves gave to these platforms can be used for personalization. And the other thing is about the explicit ways in which this data may be gathered. You mentioned, for example, interacting with our friends. So if, for example, I have one friend that has um, different types of tags, likes, or any other news feeds in their own account, the way in which I reacted to can also play into this personalization. And also, apart from this interaction with the other people, the interaction with the platform itself can basically be used to feed into this personalization. How much I spent time in one particular news feed? How much and do I scroll down really fast? Did I st stay a bit further uh, and, and longer? So these are the, the data uh, points that can be collected to start this personalization process.
And are we also looking at the the kind of wider metadata? So in the case of some platforms where they're connected to other parts of the, the web, so it's not just when I'm on Facebook that they're necessarily getting that information, but also things like whether or not I'm doom scrolling at three o'clock in the morning might be an indication of how I'm feeling about the world. How do you know that, Susie? Have <laughs> you been watching me? <laughs> uh, I've been very careful not to yet. No, I, I, I certainly was at three this, this morning. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Th this kind of data or whether or not I'm, you know, checking checking my Twitter feed at the, at the bus stop or that sort of thing rather than simply what I'm saying or, or what I'm thinking. Can all of those sorts of things feed into to this idea of, of who you are or who the user is? Yes, I mean, depends on, for example, you mentioned bus stop. If I allowed my, let's say, smartphone to use my location when I use it online, online social media account, then that will also feed into it. And the reactions, how I interact with also uh, basically cover when did I use, how much I, time I spend on this account. Do I use it in the mornings? Do I use it only at nights? Do I use it only during the lunchtime? So these will also you know, feed into the personalization process as well. And of course, then what I see will depend on the time um, that I use this account or the, or it also the, the newsfeed itself will change accordingly. And so looking at that, all of this sort of mass of data that we're constantly giving away, particularly, I think, as you're saying, through a smartphone, which we're carrying around with us on a permanent uh, basis, how much do you think um, the sort of personalization affects how we receive information and then how we form opinions and how we feel about the information that we're receiving? Well, since we talk about, since the, the personalization is creating a bespoke content, depending on all these data inputs that we considered, it has a tremendous effect on right to freedom of expression and of course, right to receive and impart information because first of all, um, it, depending on either my preferences, if it's like a news feed or depending on the, the presumed preferences, presumed preferences in the sense that all these explicit uh, data inputs and the way in which the, the, the I am put into one particular profile, I will be receiving maybe um, and I will be exposed, sorry, to a sort of newsfeed sort of information that confer confirm either previous beliefs or confirm only uh, the what the, prefer the presumed preference thinks that I need to receive the information. So from there onwards, we come across with the idea of filter bubbles or echo chambers. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, this doomsday scrolling down is that I may be given a, a, the, the, or in other words, uh, what I've been given may change according to where they are put. So maybe I am being given the information, but they are put in a different uh, areas. So maybe because of this presumed um, preference, one particular information will be in higher up than another information because it will be assumed that this is most suitable for me. And on this 
points, specifically the special rapporteur on the freedom of um, inform freedom of expression and opinion, mentioned in its uh, annual reports that this online creation in this way actually impacts people's freedom of expression and freedom of opinion because people may think that there are particular information that is worth reading, but it's only based upon this algorithmic ranking and not necessarily because they are actually important things suitable for me that I need to have the, the, the information from. So it also mentioned the special rapporteur that then elevating these particular stories to the front page or in, in a different structure, then it can influence individuals' knowledge. And from there onwards, we can consider that, well, then to the extent that this influences our um, right to receive information to an unacceptable level, then it actually impedes our uh, possibility of being informed. And another thing could be, for example, what about the lack of information? So it's not just that I am giving a particular information and particular information is, is being given in a different way on the assumption that they are more important to me, but what about the fact that maybe I am not giving any information because we might be, it might be thought that this is not suitable for us. So this can, presumably may result in a, and, and a violation of our uh, right to receive information to the extent that it actually impacts um, the way we are influenced. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month that's just over two pounds via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable. And I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Can I just unpack a couple of things um, that you said? Because I think that there's 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 a number of value judgments here in 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 amongst these issues. Um, I guess one value judgment is what what is neutral information and what what does access to neutral information mean? Um, and and I'm thinking back to before social media when you know what 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 we would be able to do. You you can go and buy a newspaper which maybe you'd you'd think probably buy the newspaper that roughly fits with your worldview or certainly in in the UK and I think pretty much around the world maybe you watch the news because you think the news is going to be a bit more neutral um, and less less opinionated but you wouldn't have access to the breadth of information that we have now so I, I guess the first question I have about that is 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 the neutrality that we are that we are reaching towards here? Is it something that existed before or is it something new that is really a, a, a question that only arises because of social media? And how do we, you know, how do we even set boundaries on that? What, how do we know what is the, the baseline for, for neutrality, for um, access to information and, 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 and a wide range of information? Um, 
European Court of Human Rights mentioned that in terms of this neutrality, they considered that for the traditional media, if the journalists are acting in good faith and on accurate factual basis, then they provide reliable and precise information in accordance with the ethics of journalism and therefore this is basic, this does not influence, this influence the audience on a level that is acceptable. But as you mentioned that the way in which we are um, exposed to the media that is all the news that is online, it's in, an, in a level that we couldn't imagine in the traditional, in the when we were exposing or when we were getting the news from the, the news stall. So this is, um, I think, the way in which we might need to consider the neutrality quote-unquote, that we might see in the traditional media in this online social media platforms. And I think another thing could be the AI, the use of AI, that if the person does not know that this actually is an information that they are receiving based on their presumed preferences, then again, we are really beyond the boundaries of this neutrality in one sense, because we don't know that it's not, it's not the same as buying a newspaper and often a channel knowing that um, what sort of, let's say, information that channel may provide to us. I think as well, I mean, apart from neutrality, it's also about the agency of the listener. And I sort of last year went on a bit of a mission um, questioning two lots of, of news feeds that I was getting from um national newspapers so one on their website and one twitter feed i was getting targeted and on the national website they came back and explained to me that actually they don't target based on personal data except for location so there would be differences the fact that i'm in london but not the fact that i'm a woman of a certain age whereas the other one the twitter feed was interesting that i suddenly got targeted with a series of articles about women of a certain age uh, dating younger men from uh, from a national newspaper on my Twitter feed. And it was interestingly, it wasn't even my personal Twitter feed. It was an organizational Twitter feed, but that had my personal email address attached to it. And when I went back and asked, I mean, the, the newspaper said, well, it's just targeting you know, women in Britain who read women's magazines and are interested in the royal family. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm not sure where they got that from uh, on my profiling. Um, and when I went to Twitter, I just hit a complete brick wall as to why I was getting these messages in that particular uh, Twitter feed. And I think that highlights the problem is that you can't really know why you're being targeted with this information, where it's coming from or choosing what kind of information you want. And I think that's the, the question behind it, rather than whether the information itself is neutral or you know, valid or polarizing or whatever it might be. It's kind of, why am I getting this? And why am I getting it now? I think is, is part of the, the issue. And so, I mean, I think, you know, how this works is very much going back to what we were talking about earlier, the question of what data is being used to profile us. So, you know, do you think data protection law can be effective in, in trying to protect our rights to, to freedom to receive information and, and to form our own opinions? 
Well, Susie, you mentioned that you were uh, basically trying to understand why you are targeted on Twitter and you hit a brick wall. And I was like, well, maybe there has to be some issues with the right to access your information, right? Yeah. Right to be informed. So those are, for example, the, the tools that I can say that in your, you know, this, in this specific example, that the data protection law could help us to understand Uh, at least why we are targeted. Of course, all of these rights may have some sort of their own limitation, but um, it's not because you hit a brick wall in Twitter, maybe they just didn't really, you know, um, fulfill their obligations <laughs> in uh, providing you with the information. So this is one way in which data protection law can be helpful to protect our, at least how do we receive the information by giving us the tools that we are able to go to Twitter or other online social media and ask, why do I receive this information? And you know, depending on the national laws and, and presume at the national regional level, they are data controllers and they have obligations towards the data subjects and data subjects can exercise some of the, the rights. They have to inform, for example, whether all this data that we provide are going to be used in automatic decision-making and how it is going to be used. And um, another, uh, for example, the, the, the right is, do I know the logic behind that algorithm that will make up that automatic, automated decision-making? So these you know, data subject rights in general can be tools in which we can protect our right to receive information. And um, I mentioned this, like we talked about these different stages in which personalization can, uh, can happen. And one is, the first stage is that there is a collection of the data. So to the extent that, for example, the, in this collection of data and justifying the, this processing of the data involves balancing the interest of the person who is collecting the data and person who is giving the data, then this, for example, the right to receive uh, information, freedom of expression, our interest in, in, in exercising these, these rights can also play into this balancing of interest. So it's basically, well, is it the commercial interest? Is it my interest of receiving the information? Which one is going to be higher than the weight more than the other one? And one particular also uh, interesting tool, let's say, in which we may be able to protect our right to receive information and freedom of expression is that um, there might be data under data protection laws, there might be obligation or prohibitions that we will not receive a decision solely based on an automated system, which means that there has to be a human involvement. And um, for example, this might involve like, how do we know, how do we then trigger this this prohibition or, or how this, this prohibition applies may depend on how that automated decision-making um, affects us. And here we can also talk about, well, if it's affecting my right to exercise my, to, uh, the, to receive information, and that means that the, these media outlets, these online social media uh, channels cannot 
give this recommendation, you know, target me with this information solely based on this AI, because mm -hmm. then this is not, this might be detrimental the way in which the individual receive the information because they will be influencing their, the, how they form their opinion. And uh, this is the, I think, one way in which data protection law can help us protecting our uh, right to receive information and freedom of, freedom of expression. Elif, th th that's all so interesting. Um, and, and I'm afraid to say that's all we've got time to talk about. But I'm sure for everybody listening, they'll be thinking a little bit more carefully about what, how they interact with all these social um, media accounts that, that we all have. Um, Elif, is there somewhere we can find any research or um, any writing that you've done which you think people would find interesting on this topic? Well, generally, I uh, work on profiling on border surveillance and the private public uh, actors in the relation in collecting the data. And um, I recently posted uh, with another colleague on Refugee Law Initiative on border profiling um, and also in the uh, Queen Mary's blogs on this uh, particular topic as well. Yeah. Thanks so much. And um, hopefully we'll speak again. Thank you. Thank you so much. So thank you very much to my guests, Elif Kuzkunmaz and my co-host, Susie Allegre. We're very grateful to the Office of the OSCE Representative on Freedom of the Media for the grant, which supports this mini-series on rights and social media. And the Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmith's rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and law within a framework of social justice. If you want to find show notes and to support this podcast and help make it sustainable, you can go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. My name is Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. See you next time.